0: These asset classes are sort of social infrastructure. They're need-based assets. So demand is consistent throughout economic cycles. So if one is concerned about pending recession, our asset classes really are ones that will be resilient. And in fact, you can reprice in an upmarket. That's why we've seen so much interest and so much demand in what we do lately.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr.
2: And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So as journalists, one of the story formulas we very much love is the winners and losers article who's succeeding in an industry, what companies are not, and why.
1: And this past year, we've written and read a lot of loser stories. We've dealt with multiple crypto meltdowns,
2: a bear market. Mm -hmm. There have been layoffs, deals just dying. I mean, the list goes on. So to break free from those bummer stories for a little bit, today we are looking at a subset of asset classes that have managed to shine despite the obstacles. I talked to Harrison Street CEO, Christopher Murrell, about why the firm is making a case for alternative investments to outperform more traditional asset types in 2023.
1: But first, let's go over the top stories of last week. Heads up, there were a lot
2: of departures. Yes, there were. First, we saw Coldwell Bankers CEO Ryan Gorman fly the coop. Reporter Harrison Connery had that scoop. To preface this, I mean, just last week you covered commercial brokerages struggling in this rising rate environment, and we know that residential brokerages have not been spared.
1: Right. The Real Deal reported that Coldwell Banker is a subsidiary of the publicly traded Anywhere Real Estate, which has lost 57% of its stock price this year.
2: Yeah, the details around Gorman's departure are still a bit fuzzy, but from all of the events that the executive had lined up, it does read as a sudden split. So Gorman had outlined his 2023 priorities for Coldwell Banker in an interview that aired just last Monday, and he was also slotted to speak at an Inman event next month.
1: Yeah, but we've definitely seen CEOs with scheduled panels forced to pivot in recent weeks.
2: Yeah, you're talking about the Sam Bankman-Fried interview at the Times, right? Yeah,
1: for anyone who hasn't watched it, I highly encourage it. It
2: was a doozy, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in New York, we also saw Jonathan Landell step down as CEO of Fortis Property Group.
1: That move was more of an intentional pivot though, right?
2: Yeah, I would say. So Landell is launching Landell Properties and he's billing the firm as a family venture that's set to acquire and develop buildings in New York, South Florida, Boston. He's going to be running it with his daughter and son-in-law.
1: And in South Florida, Catherine Colurgis broke the news that Related Company's Steve Ross had split from Jorge Perez, who's the chairman of Related Group. Ross gave up that info at a ULI event in Miami. He said that the separation was very amicable.
2: Yeah. How Catherine talked about reporting that was interesting. She said it just sort of slipped out. And she was like, that's definitely news. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Okay. so any big deals this week?
1: We actually saw a huge transaction in Chicago, possibly one of the biggest multifamily acquisitions the Windy City has ever seen. Wow. Emerald Empire, which is a New York-based firm, paid $600 million for a 400-building portfolio owned by Pangea Properties. And Pangea made a good chunk of change off of the deal. According to Chicago Bureau Chief Sam Lounsbury, the firm bought some of the buildings for less than $20,000 a unit and sold them for more than $75,000.
2: Wow. That's a solid return. I wanted to also include this story about San Francisco's Twitter building. Mm -hmm. It just missed the recording cutoff for last week's episode, but I know that you had the research credit on that piece. So can you talk about what happened there?
1: Yeah. So basically the owner of the Twitter building, which is in Market Square in San Francisco, the owner is Shorenstein Properties, and they couldn't refinance a $400 million loan on the building by a September deadline. And now Shorenstein has until January to refinance or negotiate with its lenders. But what's interesting, the reporter, Emily Landis, for the story spoke to an analyst at TREP, which is a CMBS analytics firm. And he was basically saying that there are a confluence of factors Mm -hmm. influencing why it might be difficult to refinance right now. One is that the office market in general is struggling. A lot of lenders are sitting on the sidelines, not really sure if they want to pour money into office. Two, San Francisco specifically has, has bore the brunt of a lot of the office market struggles. It's a market that has particularly not done very well over the last couple of years. And three is that with Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, <laughs> even though Twitter holds a longer lease on the property, it goes until about 2026, no one's really sure what Musk is going to do with the property. Will he terminate the deal? Would he put the entire thing up for sublease? So that uncertainty is making it difficult, I think, for Shorenstein to actually pull through a deal.
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I could imagine And I think just in general, as loans come due, we're going to see these office owners that have empty buildings still not be able to refinance those properties. And I mean, going into the new year, I think that distress is something we're definitely looking out for. In the meantime, let's look at the pockets of opportunity in alternative investment.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Dotted, the asset optimization platform with a white glove approach that helps you succeed and save time. We onboard all your asset data for you and you get a dedicated customer success rep so you can focus on what you do best and get the help you need when you need it. Get your white glove experience today by getting a demo at dotted.com, D-O-T-T-I-D.com.
2: So Harrison Street I know focuses on alternative investment. Can you define what those asset classes are? Sure.
0: Alternative asset classes really really focus around demographic trends, our need-based assets. It's asset classes that really are not tied to economic cycles. It's asset classes that are sort of resilient throughout those cycles. We focus on alternative segments around education, healthcare, student housing, senior housing, medical office life science self-storage data centers and clean renewable energy
2: would you characterize those as fringe investments things that folks aren't looking to foremost when they want to invest
0: it's interesting you know the word fringe or niche investments you know it's certainly a smaller part of the overall commercial real asset space when we started the business in 2005 i certainly did have a number of discussions with folks that really weren't sure about the asset classes. And the real concern early on was, was there going to be institutional ownership of student housing or senior housing? Was there going to be liquidity in the space? And uh, I always joke that I remember many meetings early on, people, when I talked about student housing, they equated it to Animal House. And uh, <laughs> are, is this really gonna be liquid asset classes? And you know what's been fun for us is, as the market has evolved the past 17 years that we've been active, we've seen tremendous institutional ownership increases, upwards of $60, 70000000000 billion of institutional purchases just this year. So while it's still a smaller segment of the overall market, it has seen increased interest. So it's interesting, it's gone really from niche to alternative, and now you're seeing these asset classes playing a part in many larger investors' portfolios.
2: When do you feel that started where investors were taking them more seriously and getting in more seriously?
0: No, it's a a great question. I saw it really start to flourish after the global financial crisis. Mm. And what was interesting is we started the business in 05, as I mentioned. People weren't so sure about these asset classes, but then we hit the global financial crisis and you saw that demand was consistent. Medical office property did better than office. Self-storage did better than industrial. A student and senior did better than multifamily. So all of a sudden, you had these asset classes that showed these resilient characteristics that preserve capital in the down market. At the same time, because of the fragmented nature of these asset classes, we get a better return, a better yield. It really provided what was a very interesting investment arbitrage for folks, that you've got a better return on an asset class that actually preserves capital in a down market. So I think that's when people started getting very excited about the asset class.
2: So let's talk about the aspects of the market that are maybe making more traditional asset classes, so like multifamily office, less appealing to investors right now.
0: What's interesting is if you step back and you think from the, from the macroeconomic perspective, what's happening, right? Concern about inflation, concern about rising rates, concern about potential recession. For traditional real estate, that is really all about what's happening in the overall economy. There's concern on what's going to happen to office, what's happening to retail, what's going to happen to multifamily. For our asset classes, we're fortunate in the sense of whether whether we're in good or bad economic times, children are still going to go get educated. They're still going to go to public universities. The population is aging, whether it's good or bad times. People are still going to the doctor in good and bad times. These asset classes are sort of social infrastructure. They're need-based assets. So demand is consistent throughout economic cycles. So if one is concerned about pending recession, our asset classes really are ones that will be resilient. And in fact, you can reprice in an up market. So that's why we've seen so much interest and so much demand in what
2: we do lately. So let's get into some of them individually. I'm interested in student housing because I know we saw a decline in demand during the pandemic when people weren't going to class? And then how has that come back in recent months? Oh, it's,
0: a, it's it's interesting. We actually didn't see a decline. Oh, yeah. So what happened in the off-campus student housing market, actually, even in situations where schools were doing online, the students wanted to be in their apartments. They didn't want to live at home. And the students had leases, and the parents re-signed their leases. So we didn't really see a drop in occupancy, nor did we lose any rental payments because People continue to pay for their off-campus housing. And so what's happened now is there's been a tremendous choking of supply the past few years. Not a lot has been built, but we're seeing increased enrollments at what we call the power five schools, the big universities that we invest at. So we're seeing increases in enrollment, supply down, and again, a demand for kids wanting to be at these public universities. So we're seeing really good tailwinds right now in the space. The big theme with the student housing business is that really only about 20 or 30 percent of the students can be housed on campus. And so when you think of a large public university, they really just don't have the capital. And so they're looking for relationships with private capital sources that can really either help them with their on-campus housing or create nice communities around their campuses.
2: I know with multifamily, a fear can be that if we enter a recession, people can't pay their rent. That's bad for owners of multifamily. But it seems like your investment in student housing is kind of immune to that because the parents are able to cover those payments. And you saw that during COVID. Is that true?
0: So yes and no. In the student housing space, to us, it depends on where and what schools you're aligning yourself with we typically don't go to smaller private schools because the cost of education is much higher than a public school. And so we don't think student housing will do as well in a recessionary environment at schools with such a higher cost of education. So student housing at private schools might face some tough headwinds. Uh Now- what you said is exactly right for the right cost of education, the right university. It's all about where our students going to go if we are in a recessionary environment. We see more kids, in a lot of cases, go to school during recessions. What schools are they going to go to? And so for us, we're focused on the right cost of education. And we think that will be quite resilient.
2: Okay. So does that mean public schools?
0: Yeah, public schools. You know, large, what we call power five schools. You know, you think of University of Wisconsin, University of Illinois, Purdue, University of Michigan, ASU, University of Texas... Alabama, schools like that, which are top one, two, three schools within their states, where the cost of education is quite affordable when you look at some of the private school alternatives.
2: So let's go to the other end of the spectrum, senior housing. I know there was this outlook that boomers are aging and senior living has sort of rebranded from the low-ceiling, sprawling aging buildings, and that's created more demand. That's what I've seen from my end. What about the asset do you like?
0: Senior housing, there's a pretty broad spectrum of senior housing. You can start with active adult communities for 65 plus. You can then go to independent living, which is food service, assisted living, adding healthcare, memory care, Alzheimer's, dementia, and skilled nursing. We typically like to play in the middle the assisted living and memory care portion, private pay, rental model. Our feeling is, Again, regardless of what's happening in the overall economy, it's very hard to take care of a loved one with health or memory issues. And so there is consistent demand, again, regardless of where you are in the cycle. Now, what's happened the past few years is you've seen very little building, very little supply, but certainly the aging demographics haven't slowed down. Uh, I think we're about seven years away from the first baby boomer turning 82, and that's the average age of our properties So there's this tremendous demand for the space for that assisted memory care. During COVID, the front door was shut. So we saw occupancies decline. It wasn't really a demand or supply fundamental. It was just legally you couldn't admit new residents. So the wait list build and we had four or five quarters of negatives absorption. Now, since we've been able to open the door, we're about six straight quarters of positive absorption. So we're very bullish on the space. And like I said, I think as people are living longer, more issues with memory care. So- really being able to have strong professionally managed and operated properties is going to be very important going forward.
2: This would be more of a short-term trend, but I was wondering if, because housing prices are so high, if that's driven more older folks to decide to sell and move into a senior community. And I know you said you're focused on like more memory care, which might not be where those people are going first, but have you seen anything?
0: No, it's a good point. It's something you have to look at in the senior housing space, because typically that house is their savings for going into senior housing. So In a lot of cases, that is really an important factor when determining what markets you want to be in. What is the average home price in the area? And so I think what in tougher times where people might not be able to sell their home, that's where the active adult, the 55, 65 plus, that's where they may have more challenges with those assets because if people aren't selling their home, they might not be moving into those spaces. What we're finding is, again, when you start talking about assisted living, memory care, it's really not about... Home sale price. It's really about how do you take care of a loved one that has those issues.
2: You also mentioned life sciences. We've seen that do so well throughout the pandemic. What do you see as the runway there?
0: I think there is it's huge runway. I mean, we've been at the life science space for five, six years now. We're one of the largest owners in the UK, very large owner in the US, and the amount of capital. That we think is going to be invested in drug developments, pain management, living longer, vaccines, cures, etc. We've seen a lot of money. This was one of the bigger years of capital being invested into the space. We think it's got a, a pretty strong runway for the next decade.
2: On deconstruct, we really haven't touched on self storage too much. We have focused on logistics, which has also done really well. So. You're talking about self-storage, you're talking about smaller square footage, leases and for individuals, right?
0: Yeah, you know, it's typically our, you know, in our self-storage business, typically 70% individual, 30% businesses. So a lot of businesses do use storage. It's a very efficient way for them to manage their business. So it could be a small construction company that's using the space, a landscape company, could be someone running an internet business. So a lot of different people will use storage as sort of a, almost like a smaller warehouse for their business. But it's a business that's had fantastic growth for the past two decades. And what it comes down to is storage is all about life events. People utilize storage, marriage, divorce, moving for so many different things, death. And so we use that word need-based assets. People use storage when they need it. It's not necessarily about the price of it. And what happens in the storage business is the leases are sort of month-to-month leases, but the average, the average tenant stays anywhere from one to three years. And so you're really able to reprice in an inflationary market. And, and that's the other big theme with our asset classes is in an inflationary environment, what kind of leases do you want to be involved in? And when you think of storage and student and senior housing, these are asset classes that we can reprice in an inflationary environment. And so couple that with, wow, you can preserve capital and they're very resilient in a down market. You can reprice an in inflation market. It just adds to the sort of attributes of these alternative asset classes.
2: I'd really only thought about self-storage or reported on it in terms of e-commerce and like the boom for it, all these people who quit their jobs and starting Etsy accounts. But yeah, when you put it like that, of course, you need to put your stuff somewhere sometimes. So it,
0: it, It's amazing. And by the way, it's amazing how many people put it away and, and kind of forget about it. It's, it's direct debit off your credit card. And you know, if, if you move, if it's $100 a month and you move at 5 or $10 a month, is that really going to pressure you to kind of go move to another facility? And so, again, we've seen two decades of really solid, positive growth. The challenge is it's a very fragmented business. It's very mom and pop. You're seeing more institutional ownership. But to build a portfolio of scale takes time.
2: So that's interesting. I feel like we've seen institutional investors get into everything at this point. But do you think self-storage is another market to still be tapped?
0: One has to be realistic about it. There are larger portfolios. That's where you'll see a lot of competition and pricing because people want to own storage. But the average deal, you may only be investing 5 or 10 million of equities, so it takes time to build a scalable portfolio. You probably have 15 20% institutional ownership, so there's still a lot of, like I said, mom-and-pop owners out there that you got to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. So one, it just has to be realistic about how much capital they can put in the space. There are a few REITs in the space, public REITs, to get exposure. For us, we like to do the onesie, twosie kind of investing and take time, but build portfolios because that's where we think there's great value.
2: So would you say for all of these asset classes and the trends you talked about, are those national? Are there any sort of outliers, like the main markets we cover in New York, LA, and South Florida? Are there any like weird sort of blips in those markets?
0: Exactly what you said is how most real estate investors are in four or five main cities, The beauty of this strategy of student and senior and medical and self-storage is we can be all over the country. We're in 48 states. We want to be near big universities, big hospital systems. And so that's the other benefit that many investors have with these alternative segments is that it gives them diversification to be in other parts of the country. It's a global theme. So we're doing the same thing in Canada. We're doing the same thing in the UK, Ireland, and Europe. And so for us, this... This need for for quality space, this need for social infrastructure, just creates tremendous opportunities in different parts of the country and, and the globe.
2: So any other big thoughts for 2023 that you want to share? For
0: 2023, I think there is a lot of desire to find assets that have this sort of resilience. And we're seeing a lot of interest from investors from all over the world that are looking for resilient investments, resilient themes. And it's hard to access these segments. They're Like I said, they're very fragmented. So for us, we're pretty excited about 2023. The opportunity set, the, the pipeline of investment opportunities is pretty great because not only do we have the tailwinds, at the same time, a lot of our competitors are sitting on the sidelines. And so there's a lot of folks that are sort of hitting the pause button that are trying to figure out what they do with their traditional real estate portfolios. And I think that's giving us an opportunity to really continue to do what we've been doing.
1: Deconstruct is every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. So follow us now. Next week, we're looking forward to 2023 and how commercial and residential sectors are set to fare. Tune in then.